Something was in the air, and this song seemed to catch it. Perhaps more than any other American highway, Route 66 symbolized the new optimism that pervaded the nation's post-war economic recovery. For thousands of returning American servicemen and their families, Route 66 represented more than just another highway. It became, according to one contemporary admirer, an icon of free-spirited independence linking the United States across the Rocky Mountain Divide to the Pacific Ocean. That according to the National Park Service. That sense of real possibility in the living out of our dreams. Young Tom Tate had dreams, it seems, though they weren't fully fleshed out, but he had the confidence that he could meet the challenges of the adventures ahead. At first, he gravitated to technology that was defensive, protective, to technology to protect America from possible missile attacks from the Soviet Union. And he learned well, but ultimately he was drawn to dreaming in a broader way, not just focusing on protecting our way of life, but of expanding who we are as humans. Tate followed the keen radar screen of his mind and moved from the East Coast to the West Coast on Route 66, step by step, preparing for a life looking to the skies, looking to space. T-minus 25 seconds and counting, and Apollo 13 is go. T-minus 20 seconds, T-minus 20 seconds and counting. 17, guidance release, 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. Ignition sequence has started. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have commit and we have liftoff at 2.13. The Saturn V building up to 7.6 million pounds of thrust and it has cleared the tower. This is Mission Control Houston. We appear to have a good first stage at this point. But it wasn't just his keen mind that led him. Tom Tate has a huge heart and dreams there that were guiding him too. If Route 66 would represent his career calling, there's another song that brings head and heart together, a song of a place of beauty and love, of art and music and love, those things we cherish as humans that we want to protect for us here and now and for generations to come. We'll hear the music of Tom's spheres as they come together in a story that says much about this remarkable man, shaped here in northeastern Pennsylvania and launched on a career that put him in the midst of the space program, filled with adventure and tragedy. Along the way, Thomas Tate has collected stories and souvenirs of those one-of-a-kind times and one of the most powerful images is a photograph of Earth from space. Beautiful, with its swirling clouds, its seas, and somehow the suggestion of a smile. There are over 50 signatures on the photograph, with a heading that reads, To Tom Tate, from your friends in Houston, presented as a tribute upon his retirement. And that one image captures so much of what we can learn from Thomas Tate. 
that yes, it took remarkable minds working with first-class technology and hardware to get us as humans into a position where we could take pictures like this one from space. But that's only because of the hundreds and hundreds of people pulling together to make it all possible. Not technocrats, but people who'd laugh together and cry together and become friends. To Tom Tate from your friends in Houston. That's the image on the back of the catalog prepared by the University of Scranton in recognition of the generous gift by Thomas N. Tate Esquire, class of 1956, to his alma mater of a significant collection of aerospace memorabilia with selections to be exhibited in Highland Hall on the campus in the physics and engineering department's new mechanical engineering facility. Thomas Tate returned to campus for the annual Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineers Seminar Series. Between special events, Tom Tate paid a visit to the WVIA studios, and in doing so, in a way, tipping his hat to his late dear friend, Glenn Lunny, another veteran of the U.S. space program, a flight director for the Gemini and Apollo programs, who played a critical role during the Apollo 13 crisis that resulted from an explosion that threatened the lives of crew members, one who was another dear friend of Tom Tate. Glenn Lunny's cousin is Chief Technology Officer here at WVIA, Joe Glynn, and it is because of Joe Glynn's work with Dr. Berger at the University of Scranton that the visit was arranged. As we spoke about Route 66, representing something important about Thomas Tate's journey in life, it's amusing to learn that he was actually born on the road. I was born on the way home. My mother and father were on their way home from Binghamton. And uh, what happened, it was, I guess, time. And they went to a hospital in Binghamton, and I was born before they got to Scranton. And uh, that's the way it happened. But we, uh, we grew up in Wilkes-Barre, uh, right off of Cary Avenue, and I was five years old or six years old, and my father was very successful as a real estate broker and an office downtown Wilkes-Barre in the bank building, and he comes home for dinner one night, and they were having dinner, my mother and he, and he said, I got another client today, and she said, well, who's that? And he said, this guy owns a theater in Oliphant, Pennsylvania, and wants to sell it. So my mother said, good, but why don't you buy it? And he said, what do I want to buy it? I'm, I'm doing all right in the real estate. She said, it'll be for the boys. When they grow up, they'll have, they'll have a place to go. So anyway, he goes back up, and he makes a deal, and he buys it. He buys it. All of a sudden, we moved to Oliphant, and... Uh, I was in third grade at the time, second or third grade, and St. Patrick's School was right up the road. My sister was four years in front of me, and my brother was two years behind me. So he didn't start uh, school a little later, but we went to St. Pat's, and we all graduated from there, high school. My sister went to Marywood College, and uh, I uh, ended up going to the university after, uh, after high school. And then what happened to me, I went in the Army after I graduated college at, at the University of Scranton, and I went to AAA and got in missile school in Fort Bliss, Texas. 
I had three offers, one from the Marines, two from the Army. The other Army was one at full time. But this was a reserve scholarship for six months going to Fort Bliss, Texas. So I, d- I wasn't sure about making a career out of it. I wrote my brother a letter who was in the Marine Corps at that time, stationed in Okinawa. And uh, I asked him, I said, what do you think about me joining the Marine Corps? And he sent me a letter back and said, unless you're going to go for 20, 25 years, forget it, in the Marines. Second lieutenants have a problem here in the Marine Corps. So that eliminated that. So I thought I thought the artillery school would be kind of fun. So I went to Fort Bliss, Texas, and uh, I was there for six months and went to school there. And I, uh, I played sports for uh, Fort Bliss team. I was on their baseball team. I was the catcher for them and uh, night ball there because of the heat. And uh, I enjoyed that. And I studied, I studied all the different kinds of, of launch to take down a satellite and also field artillery stuff and different, different types, projectile. And then I got released from the military and I went into the reserves in Philadelphia. And one day I picked up the Philadelphia Inquirer and what I read is RCA just won a multi-million dollar contract for the Air Force to build a radar system that will give the United States 15 minutes of warning. Up to that time, there was what they called the dew line, distant early warning system that was only seven minutes, seven minutes before a missile would hit the United States. With the Bemuse program was 15 minutes. So I thought that'd be kind of a fun thing. And I just got out of the military and I took my resume to RCA, which was building Bemuse, and they hired me. So then I spent four years there as we went through things. And uh, then what happened was Sputnik hit and the country was shaken. Now, a lot of the higher ups were kind of kind of uh, shook by the whole thing, too. And what happened was I decided I want to go to there. So I quit RCA and drove to California and went and applied at Rockwell. And they hired me, and I started on a uh, smaller program and learned all about missiles and radar and how you identify them and all that stuff. And after the fourth year, we were winding down reviews, and we did a successful program in that we delivered the hardware on time. It's in three sections of the world, and it, it spots a missile, and within six minutes, it'll tell you exactly where it'll be, where it's going, how heavy it is, etc. So you could do an adverse maneuver against it. So I learned how to do all that. And uh, I, I was pretty well done with my work. And I was going to have to go to another program. NASA was formed. Eisenhower starts NASA, 1958. And uh, I read in the paper about this new agency that's going to counter Sputnik. So when they did that, I went into uh, my boss and I said, I'm leaving after four and a half years. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to go work for NASA. And he said, you don't know anything about their engineering. I said, well, I know RCA RCA built the Navajo missile and the 
and the Zeus missile that were the two leading missiles in those days. We were trained on those at Fort Bliss. So I knew about that. And I told them, you know, I had some experience and I had some experience with the control room, which was a truck. You know, you sit in there and I learned how to read radar coming through, which would be the missiles, plus the coordinates and all that. And you you do all of that calculation and you launch a missile, either an Avaho or a Zeus at that time. And uh, all of those years I worked and then uh, worked on Apollo. You talked about what happened to the country at Sputnik, that it sent shockwaves oh, pretty much, much through. Oh, so. very uh, much At the same time, you were driving out to California, not really sure of what's going to be at the other end, on Route 66, and I can't help but think that that was a road of optimism, wasn't it? It was a Absolutely. road, the horizons were opening. Is that you what remember it was the, like? Do you remember the song? It was out in that time. Route 66, do you remember it? And it was a big hit, a big thing. So my roommate drove with me, and we went out 66, every bit of out, Albuquerque, all the way into L.A., all the way. Yeah. Also then, we just saw in the last few weeks or the last couple of months, we saw equipment on Mars. We saw liftoffs from the commercial space people. And I think a lot of the times, even though maybe we recognize William Shatner, the fact is that we all get caught up in the hardware of this experience of the space program. And what you are giving to the University of Scranton is a collection of photographs and memorabilia that really reflect the importance of the people in the program. Absolutely. And my heart was moved by all those wonderful personal signatures and the book yeah. that you recorded oh, yeah. and so forth. What about those? Because you knew the astronauts, you knew sure. Chris Craft, sure. you mentioned. Sure. The program wouldn't have been what it is without those individuals, yeah? Absolutely. Well, you know, it was uh, almost an admiration society because that was the best we had. Those were the best. The program wouldn't have been what it is without those individuals. Absolutely. And they relied on Chris Kraft. Uh, Chris was the kind of their leader. And he was, he was kind of number two at NASA, Houston. Bob Gilruth was older, and he was Mr. NASA at Houston. And uh, Glenn Lunny worked for uh, Chris Kraft. Now, Glenn Lunny is from about four miles up that way. Oh, for it. Now, what point did you get to know Glenn? Well, I was with the committee, and we had a meeting at Houston. And afterward, they had a small get-together after all the meetings. All of a sudden, I get a slap on my back. I turn around, and it's Glenn Lunny. And he says to me, Tom Tate, he said, I hated your guts when I was at Scranton Prep because you beat us every time we played basketball. And you are one of the guys that did it. And I said, well, Glenn, that's the way it goes. And But we've been friends ever since. And every time I went to Houston at functions, uh, we always got together and reminisced. But he was from Old Forge and a beautiful guy, very well thought of. And in my opinion, that if it were not for him with the CO2 problem, Apollo 13, and my friend and roommate, Jack Swigert, they would have died. I talked to Jack after he landed. We belong to the same golf club in, in Washington area. And I said to him, Jack, was that CO2 problem as bad as it's proclaimed? He said, Tom, I was already lightheaded. 
he said, I was already squinting at the at the board. And he said, it, it got so bad, he said, I put paper attached with tape on the buttons because when it came time to push the button, I didn't push the wrong button. So that's what he did. He didn't push any wrong buttons. But he said, I don't think I could have lasted. Well, he didn't say that it lasted. He said, I don't know if I could have taken another five, ten minutes. I would have gone. Well, if you watch the movie, you'll see in the movie, it shows him with the light head and, and kind of fooling around with the numbers. He said, that was only the start. And he said, now the, the magnificent thing of that thing, Lunny's team, Lunny's team worked all night after they called and said, we got a CO2 leak. Lunny took his people into a room, the guys that worked for him. And now remember, they had to put together a remedy from anything on the spacecraft because they had nothing else. And they did it, but it took them till about five in the morning, maybe six, somewhere in there. They got a system put together and they said they think it'll work. Now, the scary part to me and where I said a few prayers was after they put this unit together, they had a box, they had to tape a box to this, and they had to put tape on this and put this pipe in. Then you say, okay, turn it on to see if it worked. That was the only time my inside of my hands perspired because if it didn't shut off the bad stuff, they were gone. And Jack said, 10 minutes more, it would have been over. It was, it was that close. But if that failed, the mission failed. And if, and if uh, that worked, then the mission could go on. And the mission did go on. But that's why I always take the position that, that Lunny saved it. Because his crew and Glenn had a great bunch of guys and total respect. Whatever he said was the way. So that's, that's what happened. We had a phrase in, in, in flying called pucker time. Pucker time. It was pucker time on the ground, listening to the communication and talking to Swagger, talking to Lovell, and uh, what was the status of the vehicle. And, and you know, the part that is not even thought of by the public a lot is they had no idea after the explosion how much damage was done. All they knew is that their equipment right there that they needed was okay. We'd get them home. But they didn't know whether the chutes had burned up in the explosion. You know, coming down and he pushes the uh, final abort chute button and three of them pop up like this. And they have no concept whether they're burned, cut, or gone coming down. So even seeing the ocean and seeing ships around, etc., to landing. They didn't know whether they were going to crash until those chutes opened up. And then there was a, a minute delay over above the normal three minutes of silence between flying in and touchdown. They went four minutes. The people at the consoles thought they crashed. They thought they crashed. But in the fourth minute, they heard, they heard Lovell's voice. And... Uh, you know, that's when they started up. And then when they saw the chutes open, the chutes, they started to get the cigars, which they do after every flight, you know, successful flight. But you say you think, for you, it was, in a way, one of the most successful missions. Absolutely. 
it is it is held it is held as the fulcrum of successes recovery of that spacecraft and that's that's what happened well mr tate you have been convinced about the importance of the space program you worked in congress to try to make sure, sure. That members of congress would be aware of the importance what is it about the space program for us and for humankind that would justify taking such risks? I, I would say uh, it's out there, and the inquisitive nature of man is, is going to see what's out there and uh, mine the moon or whatever we do. It's a, a philosophical question, but there's an adventure in, in space, and people, people love it. Number one, it's it's something new, something that's never been done before. What is the old saying? Dare to be great. Dare to be great. And uh, it is a uh, challenge. The collection you're presenting to the University of Scranton covers a time in which more and more women are entering the space program. There's a very nice photograph from about 1982 of you and Judith Resnick, and that was around two years before she flew on the maiden voyage of the Space Shuttle Discovery. There's another impressive NASA professional who came to be known as Arlene Tate. I would like you to introduce us to your dear Arlene. Uh-oh. Well, uh, hmm. when I was a, a bachelor and I had uh, met Arlene, because I was up at Edwards Air Force Base on a flight test program. She was a procurement officer for NASA. She had worked for NASA for about 11 years at that point. And uh, she was number two, and she bought all the hardware, et cetera, and all that stuff. And I, I got introduced to her on a blind date. And we hit it off. We had a great time. And I was learning all about her work at NASA, and I was telling her about my work at the flight test and all that. And everything was going fine. And it came time for music. It was 9 o'clock. And what happened was the piano player, I used to sing in a barbershop quartet. And at night, there's nothing really to do in Lancaster and Antelope Valley Inn. So the piano player played. So I taught him to play this waltz because I, I learned it myself when I was back in town. And it's called Wien, and it's really Vienna, the beautiful city of my dreams. And it's almost a national anthem in Vienna. So I, I was really feeling good about this girl, and I had a straight scotch. That's how I felt. And uh, I said, I'm gonna go for the juggler here. So I said to myself, would you like to dance? And she said, Sure. So we started walking up to dance floor. No one was on the dance floor. And I go by the piano player. And I say, Les, play Veen. And he said, sure. I taught him to play Veen because I sang it many a night at the bar with the guys, right? So he starts playing Veen, Veen, do a line. So I start singing it to her in German, the same words. Wien, Wien, nur du allein, so steht die Stadt meiner Träume sein. Start going glücklich. And we're dancing. All of a sudden, she starts singing back to me in German, the same song. I stopped and I said, how do you know that song? And she said, I learned it in college. The words? Yes, honest to God. And I said, the good Lord is saying, you ought to go out with this girl again. And that's what we did. 
And then a year and a half later, we got married. But she is terrific. And one of our trips when I was working in Congress was over to Vienna. And I thought of that. And my wife had the day free. And she buys a mug, brings it home. And she's like, I got a surprise for you. She opened the top and it's Veen Veen song. Do, 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 you know. So that's the story about Veen. So you're here in Scranton to present the collection of memorabilia from all of the experiences you've had along the way. What would you hope that the gift would contribute to the lives and experience of the students? Well, if a student is serious, it will humble them to start because he'll realize, like I did, how much I didn't know. And as I told the students, they better, they better pay attention in this day and age because nobody's waiting for America to do anything. They're doing it themselves. And it may be a function of money, for all I know. But these countries, these countries, India, China, uh, Russia is very marginal because uh, of, of their financial situation. But they're small companies. And the Musk deal and the Bezos deal, they're looking at it as kind of a, a passing thing to do. Well, it's the unknown to start with. It's the unknown, and in our character, you don't like to have an unknown. And now, our scientists have found several minerals that are unique to the moon, that are very, very good, and would be very good to have on Earth. So, you hear the word mining now and then about the moon, that's what they're talking about. They're going to the minerals. You have the song in your heart, you look at the moon today, you have many experiences. Do you still have that romantic Absolutely. notion of the of the Absolutely. moon? Absolutely. Absolutely. I always think of, of my friend Jack Swigert because he was my roommate for so long when he became an astronaut. I was with him when he got the phone call from NASA to be an astronaut. That was his third try, and he made it. And he made it on the third try. He went to school at night when other guys were out dating. He was he was in class, and he finally got accepted. And uh, I was with him, and we went and had a beer together and toasted toasted it, and uh, th- that's the way he went. It's wonderful that you haven't lost that sense of magic. No, no. And, and you know what? I would, I would suggest to the younger, younger people haven't lost it yet. I don't think. I don't think. And, and the more challenges, they have good. And what I tried to tell that class is they're going to learn basics, technology, what they're doing right now. But they need to pay attention because I, I have witnessed grown men cry when they made a wrong decision. So that's what I tried to convey to them. Pay attention. Pay attention. And I, I used an example. I said, now, you're going to learn what F equals MA mean. Well, it means force equals mass times acceleration. Acceleration is the thing. You have a space shuttle yes. lapel pin. yes. A lot of the guys, when they flew, would take a bunch of these with them and put them in their PPK kit, which is your personal property kit. Each member has a kit about this size and and this long. Many of them take wedding rings uh, and stuff like that, you know. But NASA, they would have these available, and members would get a pack of them and throw it in their PPK kit and then give them to friends. That's how I got this one, from one of the friends. So, yeah, that's... uh, a uh, fun thing. I hope you get a chance to see the exhibit, all the pictures and all that stuff. Yeah, all good friends, all good friends. 
Last words from Thomas Tate here at the WVIA studios, and it concerns friends. And that tells us so much about him and about the significant collection of aerospace memorabilia that he has recently donated to the University of Scranton. On October 14th, 2021, the University of Scranton welcomed Thomas Tate home to his alma mater. Thomas Tate received a BS degree in marketing from the university in 1956, and throughout his career, he has played a major role in the National Aerospace Program, working for government and industry on the Gemini, Apollo, and Space Shuttle initiatives. This collection of aerospace memorabilia is housed in the new mechanical engineering facility in Highland Hall. It is part of the physics and engineering department's new facility. And there is a handsome catalog that was produced by the university, and it's titled New Frontiers, the Thomas N. Tate Esquire 56 Collection of Aerospace Memorabilia. There is commentary by Thomas Tate, and you can tell what a wonderful storyteller he is. That is contained wonderful images, color images, and more. A foreword by W. Andrew Berger, Dr. Berger, head of the physics and engineering department at the university. Carol McCullough, who is director of planned giving at the university. And Arlene Miller-Lanning, director of the Hope Horn Gallery at the University of Scranton. The public is invited to view the exhibit through the fall, and it's on the first floor of Highland Hall as part of the school's new mechanical engineering facility. For more information on the web, scranton.edu, scranton.edu. New Frontiers, the Thomas N. Tate Esquire 56 collection of aerospace memorabilia, and you can see it through the fall on the first floor of Highland Hall as part of the new mechanical engineering facility at the University of Scranton. For more information on the web, scranton.edu, scranton.edu.